I'm David Torstivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. This year, the company Bayer acquired Monsanto in a massive consolidation in agriculture. The deal was valued at $66 billion, and as a result, the new company, which will drop the Monsanto name to be called simply Bayer, will own 70% of the chemicals used around the world to grow crops. It will own three-fifths of the world's supply of commercial seeds. It will own a majority of the patents on plant genetic material, and it will own the largest database of data on farmer activity. Mergers like these beg us to ask if food security and the environment and the health of human and non-human species will benefit as a result. Unfortunately, these corporate consolidations of food production proceed at the same time that agricultural runoff and pollution from farming has increased. Biodiversity among crop species has been disappearing and poverty, malnutrition, suicide, and despair have all increased for farmers worldwide. And one of the trends that accompanies the rise of industrial agriculture is an increased reliance on pesticides and genetically altered crops, which have built-in compatibility with certain pesticides. Pesticide use also results in an increased reliance on pesticides. The more we spray, the more we have to use. And that's just generally because chemical inputs decrease agricultural sustainability. And rather than adjust our methods, we just double down on even more chemical and industrial ones. For instance, all this spraying has resulted in a rise in pesticide-resistant weeds and other species which industrial farmers don't want in their fields. They respond by applying higher quantities of chemicals and even more frequently. And as it becomes more difficult to manage larger farms, Using older methods, farmers rely more on these genetically modified varieties with those built-in compatibilities to pesticides, encouraging even more chemical applications. In addition, pesticides reduce biodiversity on land where they are used, and they affect more than just the species they are intended for. Many insecticides, for instance, are aimed at killing pest species, but they also inadvertently kill insects that function as predators for those same pests. And in many cases, those target pest species can recover as a population faster than predator species, which means that insecticides can erode a habitat's ability to naturally control for pests while empowering the pest species the farmer actually wants to get rid of, creating a situation in which the only way to continue is through even more nonstop insecticide application. This increased reliance on pesticides means that industrial agricultural companies and farmers are all more desperate to prevent governments from banning and regulating them, even when that threatens public health. Last year, the head of the United States Environmental Protection Agency decided at the last minute to halt a ban on the insecticide chlorpyphoros. The EPA has banned this chemical 10 years ago for indoor pest control, and it was preparing to ban it from agricultural use because of its harmful effects on brain development and function, especially in children who are exposed to it from the air and food consumption. 
According to the EPA, this insecticide is already found in drinking water and food at levels 15 times higher than what is safe for children to consume and five times higher for both babies and pregnant women. And while it may be obvious that children are more sensitive to these types of chemicals, remembering exactly why this is the case I think is important right here, Daniel. For one, children are smaller, much smaller than us, but even with that, they still take in a large amount of air and a large amount of food, much higher proportionally based on their body size than a regular adult human. This means they have what's effectively more surface area to be exposed to these types of chemicals, and that makes them that much more sensitive to these chemicals. In addition, children are not just small adults. They're physiologically different. Their brain is different. They're still in the process of developing, and this makes them very different in both their processing as well as their physical responses than fully grown adults. This means what might not be dangerous to a fully grown adult human could in fact have very intense and devastating effects for a small child. I thought it was because children simply have a higher craving for more dangerous foods like ice cream and pizza. I mean, I guess the science is still out on that one, David. But coming back to chlorpyphoros, this is a chemical that works by blocking an enzyme that allows nerve cells to communicate. And when pregnant women are exposed to this chemical, babies can be born with brain development problems, low weight, decreased motor function, and even develop to a lower IQ level at a later age. Toddlers are at a much higher risk of developing autism and ADHD. And according to the EPA, even low doses pose these risks. In addition, exposure in adults, like those who work with the chemical directly, can experience nausea, vomiting, headaches, muscle cramps, loss of coordination, unconsciousness, convulsions, difficulty breathing, paralysis, and death. Wow, I feel like one of those pharmaceutical ads right there. Also, I just realized I was eating uh, chocolate chip cookies right before this recording, so maybe I'm the one with the unhealthy cravings. You're, you're definitely going to die, Daniel. But because Scott Pruitt reversed the ban, the Environmental Protection Agency will have to wait until 2022 to even reconsider that ban. And in the meantime, 30 million pounds of chlorpyrifos will have been dropped on fields across the United States. But David, there are many more insecticides like chlorpyrifos on the market, and the science is just starting to catch up to the impact these chemicals are having on the farmers who use them. Research has been showing that farmers who experience long-term exposure to pesticides have a much higher rate of suicide and depression than the general population. Epidemiological studies in both the U.S. and France imply that those who regularly work with herbicides and insecticides are at double the risk for depression. In Brazil, farmers are more likely to commit suicide, and Chinese farmers that use pesticides are 200% more likely to have suicidal thoughts. In 2009, 25 million workers in agricultural industries were accidentally poisoned by pesticide exposure, and there were an estimated 1.8 billion people laboring in agriculture who possibly use pesticides in their everyday work. As more of these studies are carried out, the list of human health risks from pesticides is growing, as are our understanding of the various pathways by which we can be exposed. Many pesticides act as endocrine disruptors, and long-term exposure to these can lead to immune suppression and hormone problems, as well as cancer, reproductive issues, and damage to the brain. The U.S. dropped 20 million gallons of herbicides in Vietnam during the 60s. And the legacy of that exposure has been the cause of neurological issues, birth defects, and cancers among some 1 million U.S. vets 
and many, many countless more Vietnamese. We discussed this a bit more in that episode 43, FUBAR. A study this year found that the weed killer paraquat and the fungicide manab, I forgot to look up how to pronounce those names. Sorry, everybody. These two can heighten a person's risk for Parkinson's disease by as much as 250%. An observational study by the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health of 325 women undergoing fertility treatment between 2007 and 2016 found an association between women's consumption of pesticides and their ability to conceive and give birth. Specifically, the pesticide consumption was associated with lower chances of pregnancy and birth. And a study published last year in Frontier and Pediatrics studied the spraying of insecticides via airplanes in rural New York for the purpose of killing mosquitoes. The researchers examined the rates of childhood developmental delay and autism spectrum disorder among children in zip codes where the spraying occurred compared to zip codes where it was not and found a significant relationship between this spraying and those diagnoses, specifically children that were exposed to the insecticide through the air were 37% more likely to be diagnosed with developmental delay and autism. <laughs> okay, I, I know this is a lot. We, we just dumped a lot of birth defects <laughs> and other terrible things that are happening uh, that are at least sort of seem to be linked to pesticide use and the spread of that in our society. Uh, don't panic, everyone. Uh, it's still okay to eat food. Maybe make sure we're washing it. But this is all a serious amount of health information that we need to be interested in. But it's not just limited to the impacts on our human world, is it, Daniel? No. And, and this is something we're going to be touching on later in this episode is how the human health risks of things like pesticides is really just a small, very symptomatic part of the problems associated with widespread pesticide use. Even though that I think that's what gets a lot of the attention in media and in the way that we talk about these pesticides, especially online, where there is a large community of uh what, what would you call them? I mean, you have like anti-vax people and that has their own problems, but there's a similar group of people who are maybe anti-GMO or anti-just pesticide across the board. Right. That's one of the things about this topic is that it attracts a lot of conspiracy-minded people. I mean, and rightly so. I mean, these are huge, huge scale application of chemicals that are going directly into our food. But I think there's a lot of misinformation about what the underlying issue is and, and a lot of it tends to focus on the risks associated with human consumption of foods uh, involved in this system. But again, as we're going to discuss, there's a much larger system going on here. And you mentioned that humans are not the only species threatened by this increased pesticide use. Um, there's a class of pesticides, specifically an insecticide. They're called neonicotinoids. And they have been implicated in declines of honeybees and other pollinator species around the world in really alarming numbers. And as a result, this class of insecticides have been unilaterally banned across Europe and other countries. But here in the United States, just this year, our government chose to rescind and reverse a ban on these neonicotinoids, not just in general agriculture, but even for use in wildlife refuges. In episode 39, Limits to Growth, we discuss the pesticide atrazine, the second most popular pesticide on the market, and how there's a growing concern that the chemical is altering the epigenetics of humans, some of which might be inheritable and responsible in part for reduced fertility around the world. The chemical has also been shown to cause sex changes in frogs. Researchers have discovered that about 1 in 10 male frogs exposed to atrazine through the water end up developing ovaries. 
But this isn't even the tip of the iceberg. Right now, we're just looking at the effects of pesticides on single species. But where they really come into play is the complex interactions of application a pesticide has on entire ecosystems and the various animals that compose that and ultimately depend on each other for survival. Pesticides are notorious for propagating throughout the environment, transforming and impacting a wide range of species besides those the chemicals are targeted for. And they're known for traveling far beyond the immediate farms in which they are applied. Rachel Carlson shocked the world with her book Silent Spring, documenting how application of DDT was destroying wildlife. And DDT applied to a farm can also be carried away to marine environments where it breaks down into DDE, accumulates in marine life, and then gets consumed by humans. The initial decline of the bald eagle in the United States occurred mostly due to this DDT exposure. And even though DDT has been banned in most places for half a century at this point, it can still be found in animal tissue because of its prevalence in the environment. Another organochlorine insecticide called endosulfan was banned in 2011 worldwide because of its ability to bioaccumulate in tissue and persist as a potent toxin in soils. Despite Scott Pruitt's decision not to ban chlorpyrifos, which is an organophosphate, much of the world is working to ban organochlorine and organophosphate pesticides. Both of these categories of chemicals are notorious for evaporating into the atmosphere and depositing in distant places. Chemicals that have been applied to banana trees in Central America, for example, have been discovered in Arctic ice packs. This type of drift is particularly problematic for chemicals that bioaccumulate or take a long time to break down. Where they are absorbed by plant matter, for example, they may concentrate and pose risks to species that ultimately consume them. In addition, pesticides contaminate surface water. In the 1990s, the U.S. Geological Survey discovered pesticides in 90% of all water and fish samples in streams across the entire United States. They are also found in groundwater, where they enter drinking supplies and soils, where they destroy soil quality and undermine the ability to even grow crops. But David, this, I think, is where we need to take a step back. Because when we started researching for this topic, I was struggling a bit with what ended up feeling like a daunting and really difficult topic to grasp from the sheer complexity of it. And while pesticides seem like a simple concept, it turns out there are so many unknowns and so many variables and so many challenges to making sense of the research that is out there. When it comes to pesticides, there are so many unknowns, like how much are we exposed to in everyday life? How much is contaminating the environment? What are the health risks when we have only recently begun to understand how factors in our environment influence our epigenetics and change the way our DNA is read? What are the health risks when different chemicals are combined, causing problems that may be greater in scope than the sum of the risks from exposure to chemicals one at a time? And what are the health risks considering that many pesticide products are evaluated only on their active ingredient, but the so-called inert chemicals or the secondary chemicals that are used to help deliver the active ingredient can themselves have dramatic consequences on life and the environment? There's not a lot of long-term epidemiological studies in this field. Well, yes, we may understand what happens over the course of maybe a single individual's life. When we're talking about epigenetics, one generation is not enough. Two is starting to get close, and three is where we start first seeing these effects really play out. Unfortunately, a lot of these pesticides have only been in use for a few decades, and we won't understand the full epidemiological epigenetic effects of these chemicals until a few decades from now. 
Further, questions of how these chemicals ultimately break down in the environment combined with others like Daniel mentioned, these are just barely being investigated because there are so many chemicals at play here. Tens of thousands and trying to figure out the complex interactions between all these, their ultimate chemical structures, the different ways they can come apart and affect the environment and those things living in are such enormous questions that that nobody has even begun figuring out how to tackle them. Uh, the work that is being done here is much too small and limited, and we are just basically rolling the dice, hoping it turns out okay. So these are all difficult questions and challenges to answer. But what I realized during the scope of this is that while the health risks associated with the mass application of chemicals on our food sparks this very visceral reaction for most people, we have to first understand how pesticides fit into the overall system of industrial agriculture and what their function is. Because ultimately, if pesticides are dangerous to our health, that's really just a symptom of an underlying system. If all we did was focus on how to replace one toxic chemical with another less toxic chemical, we may be missing the larger issue of how these chemicals enable a destructive system that fuels deforestation, climate change, environmental destruction, topsoil depletion, loss of biodiversity, displacement of indigenous peoples, and all the other related symptoms that emerge. So, in trying to understand this role that pesticides play largely, I settled on a pretty simple description, which is that Pesticides act as the glue that holds unnatural, fragile, and unsustainable agricultural practices in place. I mean, j just consider the word pest, which is literally in the name pesticide. In a natural, holistic ecosystem where species are kept in balance with each other and with their environment, the concept of a pest really doesn't exist, at least not in the modern sense. We have words like predator, prey, and parasite to describe particular relationships between species, but from an overall ecosystem view, every one of these relationships plays an important function that contributes to the whole. Well, actually, Daniel, I can think of one place that in a organic, holistic farm, a pest might appear. Um, is it? That is, of course, the debt collector. <laughs> oh, yes, the debt collector. Sorry, continue. You, well, you know, I actually think you hit on an uh, important point here, which is that the, the concept of the modern pest really only applies when the human factor gets involved. So, you know, it doesn't have to be that debt collector, but just in general, it's only when we as humans seek to transform habitats into sites of production that we begin reframing these relationships of species and ecosystem into ones that impact our priorities. And in the context of industrial agriculture, Turning habitats into sites of production involves stripping away diverse environments into very uniform, controllable factories where only the relevant cogs remain. The problem with this approach, however, is that seeking to simplify nature into a limited handful of cogs actually introduces a lot of fragility into the system. For example, industrial production of food replaces diverse habitats with single variety crops which opens them up to a host of risky variables that would normally be absorbed by a healthy habitat, things like disease, invasive insects, and drought. A pesticide in this context is introduced to help mitigate these unnatural risks. Now contrast that with what we discussed in episode 16, What We Reap, when we talked with a permaculture farmer who discovered the usefulness of the aphid insect when it was in balance with a native plant species 
both of which are considered pests and weeds respectively in industrial contexts. But when they were in balance, Chris discovered that the weed attracted the aphid, which distracted the insect from his food crop, thus eliminating the pest nature of this insect and allowing additional organic material to enrich the soil his crops grew in, all without the need for chemical pesticides and fertilizers. But if we understand pesticides as the tools by which increased fragility in modern farms is mitigated, that still doesn't answer the question of why we are using industrial methods in the first place. And that fits into a discussion about the underlying economics of farming. There's a lot of talk about how pesticides and industrial methods are necessary to feed the global population. But we need to recognize that the purpose of industrial agriculture at this point has less to do with food security than it does pure profit. The purpose of growing food bound for sale on an international commodities market is first and foremost to satisfy demands of investment. The fact that people are fed by this system is a mere byproduct. Well, to be clear, David, that's a really counterintuitive idea. I mean, you know, to say that our system of agriculture doesn't actually aim to produce food, but it simply aims to satisfy some profit motive. Well, yeah. And when any activity is directed by finance, that is the need for indefinite returns, what we get is a system that seeks these short-term solutions to cutting costs and increasing yields. The big farmer who is on the hook for $10 million in debt, financed by some international bank that demands interest, that farmer's thinking first and foremost How do I squeeze more and more out of the land? The farmer's not thinking, what is the best way to feed my community? And that's why we see consolidations like Bayer and Monsanto, trends in mechanization, because it's easier to scale machinery than it is human labor. And it's why we are seeing trends towards larger and larger farms under monoculture models, always require more and more applications of these pesticides, because the larger these systems get, the more unnatural, fragile, and unsustainable they become. Like you said, pesticides are the glue which holds them together. And when you look at this, a lot of the agricultural industry is influenced by these things that look like secondary effects. So you have something here that that seems uh, unrelated to the way that we treat our farms, this uh, global financial system, but it really ends up defining the way that we interact with the soil and, and the business side of all of this. In the same way, I mean, so much of our modern chemical agricultural system is kicked off by spare capacity that all these industrial chemical plants had after the end of World War II. We had all this technology and investment that was building weapons for war, and though a lot of them continued to build weapons for war, some of them didn't, and they needed a way to turn all this excess energy towards something. And a lot of the same stuff that we use for building bombs and bullets is also chemically similar to what we use for our agricultural products, chemical fertilizers, and ultimately chemical pesticides. And so The fact that all this industry had been built up and needed something to turn and make a profit for is what helped to drive this explosion in industrial agriculture that we see today. It's this theme that we see repeated over and over, where very small, almost accidents of history end up totally redefining the radical way that we interact with something as simple and fundamental to being a human and living in a civilization as growing our very food. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that reminds me of... Uh, episode 11, Designing Deception, where, you know, in a similar way, we talked about how after World War II, there were all these industrial factories that had been ramped up, ready to go for all this wartime production. But now that the war was over, the industrialists at that time wanted to put these things to use, but they didn't know what to do. So 
the investment bankers came together with these public relations men and they said, we need to convince, we need to transform the American economy from one of a needs-based economy to one of a consumer-based economy. So that instead of people purchasing things simply because they need them, let's convince them to buy things constantly because they want them or because they perceive a need that doesn't really exist, all so that we can keep these factories churning more and more stuff and keep our investment returns going strong. But getting back on topic here, we mentioned how these financial incentives incentivize industrial agriculture companies and farmers to trend towards larger and larger farms and larger consolidation. We have the data to back that up. In 2001, Farms that were over 1,000 acres represented 47% of all cropland in the United States. And by 2011, the number of farms that size, I think, doubled, but they had grown to represent 54% of all cropland in the country. And so the financial reality of trying to farm in a large competitive commodities market means that farmers that can consolidate land into larger operations utilizing less human labor in exchange for increased mechanization and industrial inputs, these farmers gain advantages that enable them to outmuscle and outcompete smaller scale farmers. And so as a result, we see farms continue to get bigger and bigger. There was a Wall Street Journal article from last year which outlined this trend and compared how it relates to two farmers, one who owns 30,000 acres in Kansas and a small farmer that owned just 160 acres. 30,000 acres, just to give a quick example of just how big that is, because I think most of us aren't familiar with exactly the size of an acre, but that's about seven square miles or 11 square kilometers, more or less. A huge, huge amount of space. Uh, So that means if I wanted to run the perimeter of that farm, I'd have to run a marathon plus seven miles. Yeah, or more than a third bigger than the whole area of Manhattan. That's pretty big. And so this article is relating the different experiences of the small farmer and the large farmer. And the small farmer is trying to expand the number of acres under his control so he can make a decent living, while the larger farmer is able to use his wealth and his power to prevent that from happening. From the article, quote, This spring, a few good fields became available for rent just up the road from Mr. Small Farmer's farm, but Mr. Small Farmer only found out after Mr. Big Farmer began farming them. That's aggravating, said Mr. Small Farmer. Opportunities like that where I could get some more land, but landowners will go directly to the big guys. Many large farmers pay cash on leases versus the crop sharing deals that smaller farmers have often used and which add risk for the landowner. And so that's the end of the the excerpt, but I included that last sentence about how large farmers can pay cash to guarantee lease payments, whereas smaller farmers might have to rely on some age-old relationship like crop sharing, because that's a good example of how these barriers to access to land play out. I mean, the larger farmer simply has a better offer for the landowner. And I think that example also kind of opens the door to a more fundamental debate and question about what role we think absentee ownership of farmland should play in the first place, because that's also a fundamental component of this, is if it's not possible to own farmland that someone else is going to farm and actually put in the work, this huge advantage gap between the large farmer and the small farmer might close up. But that's probably a discussion for a different episode. And speaking of small farmers, 
In episode 34, Irreplaceable, we discussed just one of the values of biodiversity in that it offers us clues as to how to move forward on a warming planet. And as the Earth experiences these dramatic climate shifts that we're just beginning to see, species diversity offers us access to untapped knowledge, which can help our own species adapt. Here's from one of you, a listener. A lot of the content you discussed was super relevant to what I do for a living and my graduate research. I am working on a project that is aimed at studying which genetic lines of sunflowers are the most resistant to abiotic stresses, that is drought, nutrient deficiency, salinity, etc. The arm of the project I work on is focused on drought and is ultimately trying to solve some of the issues of climate change involving agriculture, food shortages, water availability, habitat degradation, and recurrent and severe drought. So this is exactly the type of work that is possible when we have a diversity of species. We have drought. Well, what species out there are doing okay? And what can we learn from them? And so in a similar vein, bringing it back to the current topic, in the same way we can learn from a diversity of species, we have much to learn and glean from a diversity of human activities. The more small farmers there are out in the world, experimenting, generating seeds, and sharing those seeds with others in their community, the more options we will have for moving forward, and the greater our chance of discovering crops, farming methods, and other structures that can pave the way forward for us in terms of actual food security and sustainability. Indeed, David. And that's exactly what farmers like Dr. Devil Deb in India are trying to do. Dr. Deb has devoted his work to providing locals in his area with access to a living community seed bank in which hundreds of rice varieties are developed and then their seeds are distributed to anyone in the area who wants them, depending on the specific conditions of their land that they have to deal with. Dr. Deb's work is really an attempt to restore what had been everyday life for villages in India before industrial agriculture found its way into everything. Here's from an article featuring Dr. Deb and the work that he does. Quote, 50 years ago, every Indian village would probably have grown a dozen or more rice varieties that grew nowhere else. Passed down from generation to generation and family to family, there would have been a local variety for every soil and taste. Rice that would grow well in droughts or deep floods, which had the aroma of mangoes or peanuts, tolerance for salt water or even medicinal value. Contrast that with today, where within just a single generation, 90% of the rice varieties in India, over 110,000 of them, have been lost. Perhaps only 6,000 remain. And so to combat this and to reverse this trend, Dr. Deb grows over 1,300 varieties of rice and then stores their seeds in carefully labeled pots. If any farmer in the area wishes to cultivate a specific variety, Dr. Deb will give them one kilogram of seeds on the condition that they bring back two kilograms the following year. In just the first three years of his operation, Dr. Deb had provided seeds to over 2,000 farmers, and that has quickly approached 7,000. But alluding to that intellectual property problem, David, in this work, he has had to keep a careful eye out for industry reps that try to find his secret farm and then gain access to his seeds either through bribery or stealing because they ultimately want their companies to get a hold of these seeds and then patent the genetic material so they can claim them as their own. 
And then, of course, they would use that patent protection to drive out uh, farmers using seeds like the kind that Deb is providing through this community seed bank so that the companies could control the land and control the profit stemming from these crops. Again, here's from an article related to Dr. Deb's work. The collective knowledge about rice growing and diversity is still there, but only in places which have not been industrialized. In a natural forest, you can still find people who know hundreds of medicinal plants. But in a monocultural forest, people simply do not know the uses of the plants. The diversity is lost. The collective memory is becoming eroded. People are being educated to think that anything traditional is bad. If you want to learn more about Dr. Deb and his work, check out the webpage for this episode where we'll embed a short video that features his seed bank there. Small operations like Dr. Deb's is not the only way communities come together to preserve biodiversity and develop land races. One of the oldest and largest living seed banks in the world is Ethiopia's Ethiopian Institute of Biodiversity. It was founded in 1976 to rescue the genetic variability of plant species in the region from declining biodiversity as a result of human activities and natural disasters. The institute maintains over 60,000 varieties of plant species just related to horticultural production. Horticultural production, in contrast to crop production, is the cultivation of species in an effort to preserve and promote different qualities related to plant growth, yield, quality, nutritional value for food species, and qualities like insect resistance and adaptation to different environmental conditions like drought. Ethiopia is also among the most important regions of the world in terms of horticultural and plant variability. According to the agronomist Hank Hobelink, quote, for millennia, the insulation and natural interconnectivity of indigenous farming communities in Ethiopia both protected and led to the creation of tremendous crop diversity. Farmers relied on diversity to provide a varied diet and ensure them against catastrophe. By planting many varieties of the same crop, sometimes dozens in a single plot, and saving seeds from the season's best performers, they encouraged genetic adaptation relentlessly. End quote. And so today, this institution represents a bridge between scientists and indigenous farmers, preserving what indigenous farmers are discovering and utilizing in their everyday practice. And so just like you were mentioning earlier, David, about how the business of growing crops now is no longer about food security, but about making profit. You know, these businesses, they, that's what they're growing these crops for, so that they can turn those crops into commodities for a foreign market. And as a result, these large industrial agricultural companies are fundamentally not interested in this type of local experimentation and discovery, the type that this Ethiopian Biodiversity Institute is trying to preserve. If you're an international company just trying to sell a standardized strain of cotton to some big fashion conglomerate, you have literally zero interest in the well-being of local food security in whatever poor country you decide to grow that cotton in. You have zero interest in preserving rich communities of diverse small farmers. In fact, you're interested in the opposite, taking their land, trapping them with debt, and converting their land to your large monocrop cotton plantations, or whatever crop happens to be the commodity of your choice. And in 2017, the United Nations Human Rights Council actually published a report that challenges the assumption that pesticides are required in the first place to feed global population. And here's an important point they make, quote, 
The amount of pesticides needed to protect crops depends on the robustness of the farming system. If crops are cultivated in unsuitable locations, they tend to be more susceptible to pests and diseases. Over the past decades, diversity in farming systems has been greatly reduced in terms of crops and varieties grown in natural habitats. The result is a loss of ecosystem services like natural pest control through predators and a loss of soil fertility. Rather than encouraging resistance, crop breeding in industrial agriculture has focused on high-yielding varieties that respond well to chemical inputs but that are more susceptible to pests and diseases. As most seed companies are now owned by agrochemical companies, there is limited interest in developing robust varieties. In order to succeed with pesticide reduction, it is essential to reintroduce diversity into agriculture and move away from monocultures of single varieties. You know what I think is really interesting about this Ethiopian community seed bank, and, and the whole idea of a community seed bank is is so inspiring to me, for, for lack of a better word. Uh, the idea that farmers can come and they say, hey, I have this type of field. This is the type of soil. This is the, the local microenvironment. This is the weather for this year. All these things can be taken into account. And an expert at the seed bank or another farmer can say, oh, you need this exact specific type of rice or whatever other crop out of the thousands or tens of thousands they have stored there. And in that case, it's the perfect crop for that very particular location. And the reason that we can have this is that, especially in places like Ethiopia, which is one of the cradles of agriculture, where people have been encouraging the genetic growth of these types of specific crops for 10,000 years or longer. That means these crops ultimately are designed and evolved to be grown in these very specific places, whereas a seed that we buy from a large company might be appropriate for oh, this is great for drought, or this is great for full sun, or this is great for salt water, whatever it is. In this case, it's not great for these things. It's great for this particular single valley because that's where it's been growing for thousands of years at this point. And there is no way that a seed brought in from outside is going to be more appropriate for that. Maybe you get higher yields from this other seed, but it's that much more fragile. And that fragility is what requires the chemical inputs that we've been talking about in order to allow it to survive in the first place. You're training something that is customized for a single location, for microclimate, for generations, for something that is just dropped in without any sort of context in the local ecosystem or environment or understanding of what is really happening in that soil, in that climate, and what's going on in those farmers' lives and the techniques and traditions that they use. And there's this concept that we have that these people, because they're not using our modernized, mechanized system of farming, are somehow inferior and more primitive and don't know how to farm. This is a meme that we see a lot of times where people are like, oh yeah, in Africa or in India, they don't know how to farm. So we came in and we taught them and now things are great. And this colonial settler mentality is so wrong. We've airdropped our misunderstanding of relationships with the environment onto these people and destroyed thousands of years of valuable crop evolution and understanding of ways of working responsibly and sustainably with the soil. They've been keeping the soil alive for hundreds of generations. And now with our modern techniques, we are sitting here today and wondering if we're even going to have topsoil in another 50 years. That means modern industrial farming will have lasted basically one century before we exhausted the soil of the earth. And we're the ones who have the hubris to stand here and say, we taught them how to farm. We taught them how to take a practice that was built about creating sustainable communities and instead replace it for one that is based on making individuals wealthy and called that a success. But I'm getting off topic here. 
Yeah, those are great points, David. And I think coming back to these community seed banks, I really think that the struggles that these institutions and these small farmers are fighting against in preserving local varieties really highlight well the issue with modern industrial agricultural practices and especially something like pesticides and pesticide-resistant genetically modified crops. And we should talk for a second about the system and how intellectual property fuels all this because for whatever reason, this whole issue of pesticides and GMOs is a super sensitive topic for people. Um, Like we mentioned earlier, it conjures up a whole host of conspiracies, misinformation, really charged and heated debate. I mean, you can just search the word GMO online and you'll read people saying that all GMOs will give you cancer. Others will be saying how anyone who believes GMOs are bad are conspiracy nutjobs. And to be clear, it's not just the paid Monsanto shills who are weighing in on these heated debates, but, but even esteemed scientists. For example, Nobel Prize winning laureates of chemistry have been repeatedly for years now been calling on groups of people and institutions to cease campaigns that attack GMOs. And these scientists are making the claim that there are no health risks to genetically modified crops and that, quote, crops and foods improved through biotechnology are as safe as, if not safer, than those derived from any other method of production. There has never been a single confirmed case of a negative health outcome for humans or animals from their consumption. Their environmental impacts have been shown repeatedly to be less damaging to the environment and a boon to global biodiversity. And so I guess it's understandable, given statements like that, that Many people rush to conclude that if anyone is criticizing GMOs, then they must be anti-science. But this is where we need to take another step back, David, because the whole point of this show, Ashes, Ashes, is to question underlying structures in which the symptoms of larger problems exist. And while it is true that human beings have been influencing the genetic makeup of plant species for thousands of years, whether from selective breeding over several generations or modern gene editing over mere hours with the help of tools like CRISPR, what is new is the context in which these new crops are placed and the tools by which they are used as a way to introduce additional pesticides into the environment, as tools to push small farmers out of the equation, and a host of other problems. That's exactly right, Daniel. That's what's so important about this GMO conversation. We're not talking here about oh, the genes are going to give you cancer or something, but rather those unforeseen consequences. The same things that created our modern industrial society because of world wars. Well, these ideas of we're going to deploy these GMO-edited crops has unforeseen consequences well outside the actual fruit or vegetable or whatever it is itself. For example, genetic modification is increasingly being used to create crops that introduce even more pesticides into the food supply. Roundup-ready varieties of cotton, corn, etc., for example, are designed specifically so that Roundup can be mass-applied to fields without accidentally harming the crop you want to harvest. For crops that are genetically altered to produce more food, sometimes this comes at the direct expense of soil health, which makes it easier for pests to damage crops, which encourages both the use of industrial fertilizer, which has a number of negative environmental consequences, as well as encouraging an even higher dependence on pesticides, since these plants are more susceptible to pests and diseases in these poor soil health environments. Going back to episode 16, What We Reap, we had a discussion about how soil is not just the dirt and the rocks that you find there, but 
Soil is comprised of whole ecosystems of countless microbial life. And what often gets ignored in the context of these discussions about whether or not pesticides and GMOs are healthy for humans is the fact that when these pesticides go into the ground, they can destroy life at the microbial level, which again requires farmers to depend all the more on industrial fertilizer and even more pesticides. Another one of those death loops we're always talking about on this show, Daniel. But more importantly, regardless of whether crops have been genetically modified in a lab or not, the system of modern industrial agriculture is one in which corporations are giving international permission to own the genetic material of crops. These corporations then use their might to control land and influence government policy, ultimately forcing farmers in countries all over the world to take on debt just to get into the farming business. Once farmers are hooked by overpriced credit demanding interest, they are forced to purchase and utilize these patented seeds and industrial methods of these large companies because otherwise they would not be able to make enough money to pay their loans. When people say that regenerative agriculture is not profitable, what's missing from that equation is the unnatural land cost and associated debt that is unnaturally forced upon people who wish to grow food. So coming back to this GMO debate, the debate on whether or not a genetically modified crop is good or bad has little to do at this point with whether they're bad for human consumption and everything to do with the industrial system in which they are used. So again, coming back to these community seed banks, these efforts are ways that people are resisting and providing a defense for an increasingly consolidated agricultural landscape. And consider, if intellectual property law did not exist, and if these GMOs did not exist in the context of a system that seeks to put the small farmer out of business, it's easy to see how crops altered through biotechnology would allow local farmers like Dr. Deb to expand their efforts, increase their abilities to innovate, and find even new solutions to regional challenges of drought, yield, etc. But in the current framework, intellectual property and the financial weapons of industrial agriculture is what's driving down biodiversity and destroying environments across the globe. When the number of rice varieties in India have fallen from over 110,000 to under 6,000, all during the expansion of industrial agriculture, we are simply wrong if we believe that this current system is good for the environment and good for biodiversity. And there's another irony here. Are we as humans so hubristic that... Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to say. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, are we as humans... Should we as humans be so hubristic that uh, we can tolerate the decimation of biodiversity because we believe that our gene editing tools will simply unlock God mode, saving us from global catastrophe that we've largely brought upon ourselves? Now, going back to the work of one of our listeners, searching for wild sunflower species that are resistant to drought is what she does in her field research, specifically so that the genetic factors of drought resistance can be understood. But that work starts with examining what's in nature. Gene editing is absolutely a useful tool. Genetically modified organisms certainly have a place in the future of sustainable agriculture, but we have to use it in the right direction. Biodiversity is what allows us to develop gene editing tools. I mean, for Pete's sake, David, the revolutionary gene editing tool CRISPR-Cas9 wasn't invented by human scientists. It was discovered in bacteria. 
Without the biodiversity that nature offers, we would not have the tools to even edit genes in the first place. Here's from an article highlighting the work of Ethiopia's seed bank. With the so-called green revolution of the 1950s and 60s, all this was threatened. In America and Europe, agriculture had shifted toward corporate models that relied on heavy mechanization, lab-developed varieties of high-yield crops, monocultures, and chemical fertilizers and pesticides. As an institution, small-scale farming was viewed as dangerously antiquated. Leaders such as American agronomist Norman Borlaug, whose efforts won him a Nobel Prize in 1970, worked tirelessly to spread the new technologies to developing nations. In application, this entailed scientists from the rich countries coming in and replacing traditional seeds with hybridized varieties. In time, corporatized systems would render indigenous farmers obsolete. Hunger would thus become a thing of the past. However, the upgrade carried unforeseen costs. As farmers shifted towards growing a handful of varieties of corn, soybeans, and wheat, native seed stock was abandoned. Crop diversity disappeared at a staggering rate. And here's what Dr. Debel Deb has to say. Quote, Companies are spending billions on gene mining or seeking specific genes. Yet after 60 years, they still do not have one which can withstand a drought or flooding or seawater. But all of these characteristics are available in the land races. I have varieties of rice that can grow and live for months in 12-foot deep water. There are varieties with amazing medicinal properties. The tribals know about certain dark-grained rice that give high levels of antioxidants and can prevent cancers. So for any of you listeners out there who haven't heard it yet, we devote an entire episode, number 33, All Rights Reserved, to the concept of owning ideas and how we've been misled and miseducated into believing that this system is good for innovation and productivity when the historical trend of this concept actually shows something radically different. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to check it out. And for those who want to learn more about this endless cycle of debt and the very concept of debt in the first place, well, we've covered that too in episode 28, Debt End, one of my favorite personal episodes. And if you want to hear us discuss in more depth these small community-led farming initiatives that are seeking to preserve biodiversity and discover new methods, well, we haven't done that yet, but maybe that's an episode we should do in the future, David. Maybe we will. (laughs) But okay, speaking of the development of corporate models of agriculture, as farms have gotten bigger and more and more unnatural, and as increased use of pesticides have resulted in increased dependency on pesticides, new methods of industrial practices have entered the farmer's toolkit to deal with these more complex farms. One of these relatively newer methods has been gaining traction, and it's delivering huge quantities of pesticides in the environment and the very food that we eat. It's called desiccation. I had never heard of this process before researching for this topic. And when I came across it, I I mean, it's a crazy idea, David. It really blew my mind that this is even going on. Why don't you tell us what it is, Daniel, why it's so crazy? Yeah. Okay. So desiccation by itself is just the technical term for the process of extreme drying. But in the context of agriculture, it's when farmers apply herbicides and other chemicals to crops right before harvest for the express purpose of killing the crop just so it's easier to harvest. 
Uh, it's a practice that started in Scotland in the 1980s as a way to try to deal with the cold, wet weather they get around harvest time. But since then, it has spread around the globe, first to North America and in regions with similar climates to Scotland. And it's become more and more commonplace with a wide variety of crops. And of course, obviously, it's a practice that, that just introduces massive amounts of herbicides and pesticides into the environment. And a lot of pesticide crops. It's not understated. It's a massive amount. A lot of times these pesticides specifically won't damage crops in the regular application, but they found, oh, if we put tons and tons of pesticide on these crops, well, then they die. But David, why on earth would anyone do this? Why, why even waste the money on all this chemical? Well, uh, you see, crop dryness is valuable to farmers because it reduces the costs on their machinery. So when a harvester plows through a field of still living plants, the extra firmness of the living plant stock puts additional stress on the machines. And of course, Daniel, that means increased costs in repair, maintenance, and replacement. In addition, for crops that are stored for long periods of time, you can't just put it from the field into storage. Instead, you have to remove the extra moisture first using expensive dryers to prevent mold from ultimately forming in that final storage. But if you dry the plants using pesticides in the field before harvesting, you can avoid a lot of these costs. One addition, we mentioned earlier the trend towards larger and larger farms. And well, the larger farms get, the more variables there are to production. Soil quality and content differs over distance. Topography can change. Weather patterns might affect one side of the farm differently than the other. And I mean, for farms as big as that 30,000 acre example in Kansas, you could even get almost different climates on a single farm. So all these variables affect the speed and quality at which the crop matures. So to smooth out these variables, farmers will use desiccation to kill everything at the same time so they can harvest all at once as opposed to trying to adapt to the different maturity rates. Another reason is just honestly simple insurance. Farmers spray even if they feel their crops will all mature naturally in time for harvest, just for that peace of mind. And this is part of why the practice has spread to wider range of crops in a variety of climates, not just those cold, wet, wintry regions. And this is because in the end of the day, the farmer has to know that they're going to be able to pay their bills. And they're going to be able to pay their bills on time. And so that pushes them to take this safer route, even if the ultimate product might be worse for the crop and definitely for the environment. This practice raises a number of concerns. As we alluded to, it just dumps a lot more pesticides into the environment, but particularly for herbicides like glyphosate, which is commonly used for this practice. And this is the big daddy pesticide that we haven't gotten to yet, but we will soon. It's the most popular pesticide in the world right now. and Also known as Roundup. Yeah, but it's important to mention glyphosate here because it has a unique characteristic, especially in the context of desiccation, because glyphosate is a non-contact herbicide. And that's different from a contact herbicide, which kills plants through direct contact, like when the chemical lands on the leaf or stem. But for a non-contact herbicide like glyphosate, it works by interfering with plant function after it has been absorbed. Glyphosate in particular disrupts something called the uh, shikimate acid pathway in plant cells. 
And this is a process through which plants derive most of their essential amino acids, their vitamins, their hormones. But glyphosate prevents this process by binding to and blocking the ability for the EPSPS enzyme to kickstart this shikimate acid pathway. Now, interestingly, the fact that this pathway is not present in human cells is one of the main arguments for why uh, we should not be concerned with glyphosate and that it's safe for human consumption which obviously is hugely debatable. But what this means is that because the pesticide is absorbed by the plant itself, when farmers apply it before harvest, if they don't time it just right, then the chemical ends up getting fully absorbed into the seed and the grain, which eventually makes it into our food products. And because this practice is expanding to a wider variety of crops, everything from corn, potatoes, sugar beets, soybean, peas, and much more, this could help explain why we're seeing higher amounts of pesticides like glyphosate in our everyday food products, even things like ice cream. In fact, I think at this point, it's almost difficult to find food products that don't have some sort of traces of glyphosate, but I think we'll get into that in a little bit. David, this is a good point in the episode to pause for just a minute and comment on a concept, an argument that gets made a lot of the times in this context of agriculture, modern practice, and a global population that needs to be fed. So today, despite our economic growth, over 10% of the world's population suffers from chronic undernourishment, some 815 million people. And in 2016, this trend had become worse than previous years. So what many people will rightfully bring up when facts like these are presented is that well, we already produce enough food to meet the needs of every person on the planet. The problem is we just don't distribute it properly. And this is kind of true, but it in a lot of ways simplifies this problem too much. And it can actually open the door to an emphasis on market reforms, other supply side economics to kind of fix this problem through things like pesticides to increase the yields of crops so that we can distribute them more easily. But ultimately, this approach and this argument ignores the more important aspect of this problem, which is how we produce food in the first place. So we do have this global undernourishment problem, but oftentimes the very people who are most undernourished are poor farmers in poor countries that are actually working in the agricultural industry. These are literally the people that are at the source of food production, yet they themselves aren't being fed. And it's because of what we've been discussing largely so far, that rather than producing a variety of crops for their local community, People in poor and developing countries are often forced to work for large industrial food factories, which pay them low wages and then ships their crops to commercial markets. At the heart of this issue is not simple food distribution. It's, it's a much larger problem of land management and ownership, which gets back to the economics of all this. Well, actually, Daniel, here's an example I think that fits well into this discussion that we saw in the paper just this morning. In a global economy where food commodities are products separated from their ties to locality, small farmers and whole communities are at a total disadvantage against large institutions who can use their wealth to gobble land at prices that are totally out of line with local markets. For example, it has just been reported that Harvard University has been secretly purchasing thousands of acres in land in California since 2012 under its natural resources investment arm. Uh, which is a ridiculous thing that a university has, but the institution has been purchasing land 
way, way above market price in areas that have the best relative groundwater resources, and then planting huge vineyards that it hopes to make profits on. These investments are informed by climate change. And what they are essentially doing is betting that as drought continues to worsen in California, the water resources under the ground that they now own will become all the more valuable. And in a future global hellscape, those with the best land will also have the most valued crops on a global market. Literally, Harvard claims it makes investments under this natural resources asset class in areas where, quote, we believe its physical products are going to be in an increasing demand in the global economy over the coming decades, end quote. In this case, that product is this wine. So this is the system we have today. Institutions that are disconnected from local regions can use their wealth to take control of land away from locals, hoard community resources like water, bet on the very destruction of Earth that is funded in large parts by these large financial institutions, and then extract all of these resources. And this is, once again, just for the sake of making a bet on how to profit from this global catastrophe that is climate change. Yeah, th this revelation about Harvard is just so disturbing to me. Um, but I guess when we live under a system in which profit is the priority, this is the reality that our institutions and our governments will value that profit over the health and well-being of people and their communities. I mean, that's what led to the decision that Scott Pruitt made to rescind that ban on that harmful insecticide. And, and it also leads to these regulations that end up distorting the truths about the risks of these chemicals because they're caving to industry pressure. But, you know, I think this Harvard example also just so perfectly illustrates how this industrial agricultural system truly is about investment and has nothing to do with feeding the global population. It's, it, this isn't a distribution problem of crops. It's the fact that we're not producing them for food in the first place. If our true goal was to feed the world, would we make the decision to grow grapes on the last remaining cropland that we have that has access to water? No, but it does turn out that that is a great way to make revenue off of water when you can restrict access to it. And it's not just wine, Daniel. We see this action repeated in other crops that are water heavy, like almonds or pistachios. And you can trace the ownership of a lot of these farms to large institutions and very wealthy individuals who aren't trying to grow food for sustainability or to feed the world, like you mentioned, but rather to hedge their portfolios for when that drought comes so that they can say that they own these water portfolios and acknowledge that the value that that has in this future hellscape that you've mentioned. And other examples too, like the one that we discussed in episode 12, Up in Smoke, where we discussed the Burn it all down. Uh, increased risk of wildfires all over the world. You know, there are international companies that look at Indonesia and decide that the best way to proceed there is to gobble up the land, slash and burn all these diverse ecosystems and these diverse forests and just convert those to large tracts of palm oil plantations, contributing to global warming, increasing the risk of wildfires, and also that they can extract from the soil this palm oil, which we use in cosmetics and, and other food substitutes that we truly don't need if our goal is to feed a global population. But that's enough of all that, David. It's time to turn our attention once and for all to the big daddy in the room, and that's glyphosate. Ah, glyphosate. Glyphosate is the most used herbicide in human history, Daniel. In fact, 18.9 billion pounds, that's 8.6 billion kilograms for our non-imperial users, of glyphosate-based herbicides, or GBHs, have been sprayed worldwide in just four decades. 
Glyphosate use has also increased 15 times since genetically modified crops were introduced in 1996. Not surprisingly, glyphosate is found almost everywhere. Not only is it the most popular pesticide in the world, it has a propensity to contaminate soil and water sources, making its way into systems beyond the immediate farms in which the chemical is applied. In the ground, it can take between 4 and 180 days to degrade, and in water, its half-life is between 76 and 240 days. This contamination of the environment enables glyphosate to interact with a host of species, like birds, insects, bees, and other important pollinators that the chemical may be toxic to. And as we discussed with desiccation, the, the chemical has also found its way in a wide variety of human products. And it turns out it's not just food, David. Because of its use with Roundup-ready cotton, glyphosate has been discovered in such products as medical gauze and even tampons. And it's because of this ubiquity in all our products and our environment that there is so much attention around glyphosate. And because it is literally the bedrock of modern industrial agriculture, the money that is at stake can help explain all the misinformation and the smear campaigns that make it difficult to understand what the debate around the health risks even are. Now, trying to determine what definitive health risks might be connected with glyphosate proves to be pretty difficult, if not impossible, for a number of reasons. On the one hand, it remains a mystery just how much we are actually exposed to. Despite being the most popular pesticide on the planet, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration just recently started monitoring levels of the chemical in the foods we eat. They have released some of their findings so far and officially, quote, of the 760 corn, soybean, milk, and egg assignment samples tested for glyphosate, 53% had no detectable residues of the pesticides. Further, none of the milk and egg samples had any detectable glyphosate or glufosinate residues, and all the corn and soybean samples that tested positive for the pesticides were below the tolerance levels set by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, end quote. But now how honest that the FDA is with its finding is another mystery. Before these results had been made public, freedom of information requests had revealed FDA internal emails showing that the organization was finding glyphosate in a whole host of foods like crackers, cereal, and honey. One of the labs working for the FDA had found illegal levels of glyphosate in corn, but a supervisor dismissed the finding as being unofficial, and that same lab had also found glyphosate in honey and oatmeal samples, and when they tried to report this, the FDA suspended further testing and reassigned the lab to a different job. But then the other problem is that even if a particular pesticide's residue on food is found to be below the legal limit, the legal limit itself might not actually reflect what is acceptable for long-term human health. Between 1993 and 2015, for example, the EPA has increased the legal limit for glyphosate by as much as a factor of 50 for major crops like corn. And in the U.S., the EPA sets an acceptable level of daily human exposure to glyphosate at levels that are three and a half times higher than the European Union's standards and 17 times higher than levels that have been recommended by some groups of scientists. So there is misinformation going on, even among our most respected public science institutions. And there is no doubt that industry pressure coming from large chemical and agricultural companies influences the decisions related to regulating and establishing legal limits for these products. But misinformation is coming not just from those with financial interest in pushing the benefits of glyphosate, but also those 
with a vested interest in pushing for organic products or lifestyles. And with so much money on the line, this all comes together to form an information landscape that is extremely hard to navigate. Yeah, for instance, I got kind of sucked into this uh, rabbit hole discussion about whether or not glyphosate causes disruptions in the human gut microbiome. So there are uh, many people claiming that glyphosate does, in fact, disrupt the bacteria in our gut, uh, which could possibly lead to celiac disease. And based on the types of bacteria in our gut that it influences and impacts and damages, um, it can make us sensitive to certain foods that we otherwise wouldn't be. Other people will point out that that doesn't really make sense from a biologically mechanical standpoint. And even articles that have been published, like one I found was published in the National Academy of Sciences, showing some connection between glyphosate and the gut microbiome of bees. However, when you look at the data, they had looked at something like like 45 individual bees, and they found this link in only nine individuals. And so... <laughs> In a journal like the National Academy of Sciences that is you know, normally really highly respected for its peer review process, this might have been an oversight. But unsurprisingly, there's a lot of articles that will take this headline from the study and, and jump to these really audacious conclusions. So, I mean, this is the type of information landscape that people have to grapple with. But putting gut microbiome aside, I think the health risk that people are most interested to learn about is whether or not glyphosate has a link with cancer risk. That's right, Daniel. Currently, the International Agency for Research on Cancer classifies glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen based on evidence that the chemical can cause genotoxicity and oxidative stress, as well as an epidemiological association between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a type of cancer of the lymphatic system. The IARC also cites studies that observe kidney and liver cancer in animals exposed to glyphosate in their food. That being said, the IARC is currently the only major institution outside of the state of California that makes the claim that the pesticide might be carcinogenic. The US EPA, the European Food Safety Authority, and a joint session between the FAO and WHO all claim that glyphosate is unlikely to cause cancer in humans. Here's from a paper published in March of this year trying to make sense of the contradictory claims related to glyphosate and cancer. Quote, the conflict between the two organizations of the World Health Organization triggered many doubts, and for this reason, a series of independent studies were launched to better understand what glyphosate's danger to humans and the environment really was. The results have brought to light how massive use of the herbicide has created over time a real global contamination that has not only affected the soil, surface, and groundwater as well as the atmosphere, but even food and commonly used objects such as diapers, medical gauze, and absorbent for female intimate hygiene. How human health is compromised as a result of glyphosate exposure is a topic that is still very debatable and still unclear. But while these institutions go back and forth on their official stance, perhaps the pressure that will ultimately get these chemical companies to disclose pesticide risks and to change their products will come from a new wave of lawsuits that threatens to make Bayer's acquisition of Monsanto a very bad deal. A very bad deal indeed, David. In August of this year, a jury in California found Monsanto responsible for the severe non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that a man developed as a groundskeeper for California public schools. Dwayne Johnson was responsible for applying Monsanto glyphosate weed killers as much as 30 times a year. And after developing terminal cancer, 
A jury has charged Monsanto with intentionally failing to warn consumers of the cancer risk associated with its products Roundup and Ranger Pro. Now, in this landmark case, the very first of its kind, Monsanto was ordered to pay $289 million. Apparently, the jurors had seen internal emails from Monsanto executives who knew their products posed cancer risks. But what is significant about this case is that it sets a precedent that could become very costly for the company because there are 8,700 similar cases lined up that have been filed and have similar claims to the one that that jury just deliberated on. So I guess we'll see if Bayer can avoid this coming wave of lawsuits or if we'll see a big change in, in global perceptions of glyphosate. But getting back to the main thrust of this section, I mean, it is so difficult to navigate all these discussions online because there's so much pseudoscience, bad science, and paid science from industry shills. And in fact, if you even go on a website like Reddit and you just mention casually Monsanto, GMOs, glyphosate, Roundup, there are people who will show up who do nothing but post about Monsanto and glyphosate all day long defending these companies. These shills, whether they're paid or volunteers, they are dominating these discussions online. And even in the world of academic science, if you find a journal article that deals with glyphosate or GMOs and you ultimately Google the author's names, you're more than likely to find whole web pages devoted to either how they're paid Monsanto shills or they're paid anti-Monsanto shills. And that's basically the state of the discourse. So it's really hard for us to try and navigate and say anything concrete because there is so much up in the air. There's so much funding from both sides. And it's really impossible to say anything for sure. Plus, we're probably going to be sued. And so we'll have to add that up to our other billion dollar fine that we're already facing, Daniel. It's a new new Patreon goal right there. We should, we should set that $1 billion to pay off record label. But ultimately, this topic is not important from the perspective of the health risks of human consumption of food. Even if we could definitively say with no question that a pesticide like glyphosate poses zero human health risks, we still have the entire system of industrial agriculture to deal with, which is destroying our environment, destroying food security, and decimating life on this planet. A process that is made possible by inputs like glyphosate and other pesticides. Let's turn our attention, David, now to regulators in this field, the EPA and, and others, and how blind spots in how we regulate these chemicals are impacting people outside of the countries in which we regulate their use. So we mentioned how the institutions that regulate the use of pesticides have several blind spots. The EPA has reversed bans on chemicals that we know are toxic. The residue limits that our agencies set for pesticides often exceed limits determined to be safe by other agencies around the world as well as independent scientists. And the way these chemicals are regulated in the first place often focus on their immediate health risks, which overlooks their role in a systemically destructive system. But there is another blind spot to these regulatory efforts that's really important to mention here, and that's how the destruction that is caused by pesticide use is often outsourced to poor countries and hidden from the efforts of regulation in countries where these crops ultimately end up getting imported. So when the EPA, for instance, sets limits to pesticide residues that are allowed to be left on crops, this might help us prevent the importation of crops that have dangerous levels of chemicals left on them. But all this does is target the level of chemicals that will be introduced into our diets directly. 
What it totally ignores is the fact that pesticides in those countries where the crop originated from, well, those pesticides also enter populations of local birds, the soil, the drinking water, other non-target species of plants, insects, and aquatic animals. So it appears that we are willing to tolerate the wholesale destruction of communities around the world, so long as that when those apples and those bananas reach our border, the residue from those chemicals have been mostly wiped clean. Well, let's talk about some of those impacts on the global poor and some of the consequences that we know a pesticide application in poor countries. From a paper published a decade ago in Interdisciplinary Toxicology, quote, No segment of the population is completely protected against exposure to pesticides and the potentially serious health effects, though a disproportionate burden is shouldered by the people of developing countries and by high-risk groups in each country. End quote. Now, often when these facts are described, they get framed in this apologetic way that says, while it's unfortunate the developing countries face higher risks, this is simply because they have not built up the same safety standards. They don't know as much about farming as we do, and they lack the necessary infrastructure that we here in our wealthy countries have. But as we saw with the story of Guatemala in episode 11, Designing Deception, developing countries are used by the international community as a source of for commodity crops. In Guatemala's case, the president who wanted to give land to local people to farm for themselves, he was ousted by US-backed military coup for the express purpose of putting that land back into the hands of American banana companies that could then turn the whole landscape into a monocrop banana orchard. So we see that in many cases that these developing countries are not truly in control over their own land. The crops they grow are often forced upon them. And this is not something new. This is a historical trend. Between 1630 and 1654, for instance, the Dutch West India Company invaded Northeast Brazil, increased the number of sugar plantations, and then expanded production to the islands in the Caribbean, which resulted in enormous devastation to the land, leaving countless local people starved and impoverished. If there is greater environmental destruction and greater health consequences of farming in the so-called developing countries, it's not because these countries lack development or that they are backwards. If anything, it's because of harmful agricultural practices that have been forced on the region by international pressure. Crops are not grown to satisfy the local needs of food security in the regions in which they are grown. Those crops are grown to be extracted, exported, and thrown into the mix of an international commodities market. And in this context, we see that the greater health risks associated with pesticide use and greater environmental destruction in these poor regions of the world represents direct exports of destructive land management practices from wealthier countries. At the same time, for instance, that we here in the United States enact laws to conserve land, we outsource an even greater size of land destruction outside our borders. And so that argument that you highlighted a bit earlier, David, that, oh, you know, developing countries simply lack the infrastructure. They lack the development. And that's why they experience health problems. That's why their agricultural methods are harmful. This argument is doubly dangerous. Not only is it simply wrong for the reasons we've outlined, but it can be used to justify increased investment in these areas. Investments that ultimately fuel the expansion of this financial agricultural system. So, Daniel, that brings us actually towards the end of this episode. 
and the ultimate question that we try to ask: What can we do? We know actually came across something interesting、uh, researching this topic, which is something called the precautionary principle. And so, some countries have actually decided to ban certain pesticides, not as a result of some research that shows their toxicity, but specifically because there was no research. And they decided that look, it's better to err on the side of caution to prevent a process that could be harmful, rather than implementing it only to find out that it's harmful later. And this is a concept that we've touched on. It's a discussion we've had, for example, in episode 19, "Life in Plastic," where we talk about just the sheer scale of how many chemicals there are in our environment and in the products that we use, none of which have been tested or regulated in any way. Mostly because it would be totally unprofitable if companies had to test the risks of every chemical they put into our environment. But also because, in a lot of ways, our economy follows a reverse logic, which is we build something or we invent something and we find some use in it, so we just put it out there. We we use it as much as possible. But only then, when something bad is discovered, do we try to adjust it or maybe clean up the mess that we made. And this is something that happened with those microbeads and cosmetic products that we decided to ban worldwide. When we found out, oh, maybe it's not good to be washing microplastic beads down the drain in all the products we use, and also putting them in our bodies. And so, this reverse logic results in a unmanageable and destructive world, like the one we have now, where we look around and we notice that the problems around us have outpaced our ability to correct them. So, I think we should be encouraging ourselves and the policies that our governments enforce. To try and reverse this logic, so that when we look at implementing a practice, implementing a new business, implementing a new product, we should not wait for the science to catch up on the risks. With things like pesticides, after World War II, like you mentioned, we had these chemical factories sitting around. If instead of just saying how can we put these to use, if we had asked what are the risks of putting these to use, what are the risks of mass application of chemicals on the food that we eat. If we had decided to wait before we changed the world, we might not have found ourselves in the situation we're now in today. And on the more practical application of these questions, Daniel, maybe we should just ask ourselves: Where does our food come from? It's a simple question and something that really we aren't able to answer for the first time in human history. Because before this point, when our crops are flown halfway around the world just to get to our dinner table, we knew where it came from. It came from down the street. It came from a few fields away, and we could trace exactly the responsibilities of the person who grew it because we knew them, or we were friends, friends with them. They were part of our community. But as our civilization grew and we spread increasingly far apart and away from the farmland, that connection disappeared. And now, when we walk through our grocery aisles, we see these gleaming fruits and vegetables, and we have no context. We don't know where they were grown, how they were grown, what chemicals were applied, what fertilizers were on them, what the people in the field saw and had to go through in order to bring that growth to us. And though we might look for terms that say organic, that are certified, fresh, or whatever word it is, those don't necessarily mean what we think they do. An organically grown crop is still grown with pesticides, natural pesticides, which in many cases are more toxic than the synthetic pesticides that we are all so terrified of, often rightly so. And it's not a question of whether we should be getting organic or non-organic food, but understanding that the best food comes from these small farms. When you have a thirty thousand acre farm, 
You are forced to grow food in a certain way, in a way that is not sustainable, in a way that makes heavy use of chemical supplementation in both fertilizer and pesticide. But when somebody has a small farm, a farm they can manage, and they understand every component of that farm because it's small enough that you can understand the soil and all of it, the climate of it all, then you can have somebody who is limiting those inputs as much as possible because they are responsible for keeping this small patch of life alive. So go to your farmer's market and whether or not it says organic or not, if it's from a small farm, in many cases, small farmers can't afford fully organic certification. This is something we talked to Chris about. Uh, Maybe it was mentioned in episode 16, but if not, it's a common problem with small farmers. But whether or not it says organic, the fact that you can walk up to the farmer or somebody who was there on the field who picked these things and ask them, how was this grown? And they can give you an answer, something you won't find at your mega grocery market. That has value. It's good to know where your food comes from. And maybe this is a luxury that those of us who live close enough to a place where we can easily get this food in this manner have, whether it's from a farmer's market or because we live close to the farmers themselves. But it's something, if we have this ability, we should embrace. And we should try and bring this to as many people as possible. And we should make sure that this burden of knowing where the food that we eat comes from doesn't rest solely on us as consumers. But a grocery store, which has the power to pressure these producers, should have a section that is set aside of food, fruits, and vegetables that are grown responsibly. And whether or not it says organic or not organic, we need to know that these crops were grown with limited and responsible input of these chemical processes. That the soil is not being sucked dry for nutrients, but instead turned in a way that ensures that it's going to last for generations ahead. And when we can find places that have embraced these community seed banks, places like Ethiopia, places like India, places like Bhutan, countries around the world that have realized the value and the knowledge of generations of farming and the evolution of the crops in these microclimates and environments, we should encourage this. We should spread these ideas as many places as possible and try to resist the temptation to take this knowledge take it somewhere else and drop it out of context on an unsuspecting world with little regard to what consequences that might mean. Whether this is donating to these organizations that are doing this or just talking to people and making them aware of the very real consequences that our diet has on the earth, on the health of these ecosystems and our own health. But you know, this is just something that going forward, all of us are going to have to work hard to transform our perspectives on this issue. When it comes to agriculture, these concepts of local agriculture, and as consumers seeking out those crops that we know where they come from and selecting for the healthier sources. I mean, these are all things we're going to have to be thinking about. And related to that, you know, we're seeing a lot of discussion about climate change everywhere now as it's becoming just impossible to ignore. And you see a lot of these debates go back and forth between Should we point the fingers at the consumers for purchasing the products that then fuel the profits of harmful companies? Or is it the fault of companies for making these harmful products or doing whatever crazy thing they're doing? I think ultimately, no matter who's at fault, if we want to go forward in this world and face this global catastrophe that's on the horizon, all of us are going to have to experience a dramatic lifestyle change. Now, this doesn't have to be for the worse, but it will be a dramatic change. And when it comes to agriculture, that's one of them. If we want to reverse this trend of larger and larger consolidation in agriculture and larger farms, it means that more of us are going to have to participate in food production. It means more of us are going to have to be part of communities where local resources are used in a responsible way to produce food sustainably. 
But I know we don't really have a lot of practical tips at the end of this episode, but in the same vein of transforming our perspectives and, and reframing our minds, I could not hope to say it any better than someone like Wendell Berry. So, you know, rather than trying to carry on, I want to just read a passage from one of his essays called Two Minds. <clears throat> this is supposedly an age of reason. We are encouraged to believe that the government's and corporations of the affluent parts of the world are run by rational people using rational processes to make rational decisions. The dominant faith of the world in our time is in rationality. That in an age of reason, the human race or the most wealthy and powerful parts of it should be behaving with colossal irrationality ought to make us wonder if reason alone can lead us to do what is right. The rational mind, without being anywhere perfectly embodied, is the mind we are all supposed to be trying to have. It is the mind that the most powerful and influential people think they have. The rational mind is objective, analytical, and empirical. It makes itself up only by considering facts. It pursues truth by experimentation. It is uncorrupted by preconception, received authority, religious belief, or feeling. Its ideal products are the proven fact, the accurate prediction, and the informed decision. Under the reign of the rational mind, there is no firewall between contemporary science and contemporary industry or economic development. It is entirely imaginable, for instance, that a young person might go into biology because of love for plants and animals. But such a young person had better be careful. For there is nothing to prevent knowledge gained for love of creatures from being used to destroy them for love of money. When the rational mind establishes a farm, the result is bad farming. There is a remarkable difference between a hog factory, which exists only for the sake of its economic product, and a good farm, which exists for many reasons, including the pleasure of the farm family, their affection for their home, their satisfaction in their good work, in short, their patriotism. Such a farm yields its economic product as a sort of side effect of the health of a flourishing place in which things live according to their nature. The hog factory attempts to be a totally rational, which is to say a totally economic, enterprise. It strips away from animal life and human work every purpose, every benefit too, that is not economic. It comes about as a result of a long effort on the part of scientific agriculture to remove the sympathetic mind from all agricultural landscapes and replace it with the rational mind. And so, goodbye to the shepherd of the parable and to compassionate young men who leave agriculture for good. Goodbye to the cultural landscape. Goodbye to the actual landscape. These have all been dispensed with by the rational mind to be replaced by a totalitarian economy with its neat, logical concepts of world as factory and life as commodity. This is an economy excluding all decisions but informed decisions, purporting to reduce the possibility of loss. The sympathetic mind leaves the whole world, or it attempts always to do so. It looks upon people and other creatures as whole beings. It does not parcel them out into functions and uses. And so let that be inspiration for you. And may we all go forward in a sympathetic mind towards a better world.
That's a lot to think about, but think about it. We hope you will. You can learn more about any of the things we talked about today, read all the papers we referenced, see a quick video on Dr. Deb, and much more, as well as read a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, discussing these issues with those in your community. And if you would like to send us a little financial love, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. There you can see our goals as it pertains to funding, as well as get yourself a sticker. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we're going to look at the intersection of big business, public money, and all of us who are left holding the bill. We hope you'll tune in for that. Oh, yeah. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We appreciate them. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.